2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. The Democrats are focusing now on voter mobilization and turnout, while the Republicans are hard at work on vote suppression. How significant will the Republican effort be in this election, and where is it likely to have the biggest impact? Ari Berman will report later in the show. Also, we'll speak with Gary Young about politics in the Midwest, the heartland, the Rust Belt. He's covering the midterms from Racine, Wisconsin, an old Democratic factory town on Lake Michigan. But we start today with something special, a political conversation with Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Joan Walsh, and Cecile Richards. It was recorded at a Nation magazine event last week before the mail bombs and before the Pittsburgh synagogue killings. Katrina Vanden of course, is editor and publisher of The Nation and a columnist for The Washington Post Online. Joan Walsh, of course, is The Nation's national affairs correspondent and a CNN political analyst. She's also the former editor-in-chief of Salon and author of the book What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. Cecile Richards, was president of Planned Parenthood from 2006 to 2018. At the end of her term, more than 600 Planned Parenthood health centers provided services to 2.5 million patients and provided sex education to 1.5 million people. Planned Parenthood's websites, including Planned Parenthood in Español, now receive 76 million visits each year. With Cecile as president, the number of active Planned Parenthood supporters more than tripled. Now it's more than 10 million. Before joining Planned Parenthood, Cecile founded and served as president of America Votes, a coalition of 42 national grassroots organizations working to maximize voter registration and participation. She started her career organizing low-wage workers in hotels, and in the healthcare and janitorial industries in California, Louisiana, and Texas. And of course, she's the daughter of Texas Governor Ann Richards. The event opened with Katrina Vandenhoevel.
3: We've exposed and we've reported on Trump, but we tried every day to separate the sensational and the shocking from the serious and the fundamental, because Trump's master plan is to distract and divide. So we focused on the new energy, the social movements, the organic activism, the new progressive candidates, from Congress to state houses to DA's races to attorney generals to local school boards. We've covered the new groups. We've reported on indivisible and also smaller groups like Lancaster Rise Up, Mothers of the Movement, Justice Democrats, Swing Left, We were early to cover, we call her AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign, for all the right reasons because she talks about fusing economic, social, and racial justice. But we've also given early attention and great attention, I think, to Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, Kara Eastman, who may win in Nebraska, Lucy McBath in the 6th District in Georgia, Johanna Hayes in Connecticut. Jess King, Katie Porter, and of course, Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, Ben Jealous, Beto, Beto, and the battle of ideas, ideas we have championed at the nation for many years, Medicare for all, 15 minimum, free higher ed, green jobs, immigrant rights, peace and justice, and champion the right to vote, laser focused on those well-funded forces who believe one person, no vote. That's not what we believe, and we have to fight for those rights. So let me just close. In fact, in our reporting, we have found grounds not just for hope, but dare I say for optimism. I mean, think of the Women's March. That march wouldn't have been what it was without Cecile Richards. She's too humble to say that's the case. And Joan Walsh was one of the few correspondents at the march who understood the power that would come from those women from the streets into electoral strength, and we've seen it play out in this last year. So that's, I think, why we have a sense that there is more hope in these times. It's going to be a long struggle. You know, it's going to demand patience and perseverance. These challenges to power, not all of them are going to prevail, but we're in it for the long haul. And I would suggest that what we've witnessed isn't just another year of the woman. We've witnessed a sea change in American politics pro-choice, democratic, progressive women running all across the country is and will continue to be the new normal. So at the nation in the season of hope and, yes, despair and anger, we've been guided by two and a half principles, staying close to the grassroots, a belief that history is essential because it reminds of the possibility that what was can be again, and a belief that no is not enough. We also need to lay out our yes.
2: That was Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Joan Walsh spoke next, followed by Cecile Richards.
4: I have seen such an amazing mobilization heavily by women, but along with great men, in places like Virginia, where women really did come back from the Women's March and decide to run for the first time for the House of Delegates. I've seen it with Stacey Abrams, but even before that, you know, I I covered the... Uh, special election in Georgia, 6th, which, you know, was disgusting because of all the money. But the thing that was not disgusting was the amazing, again, on the ground, mobilization of women. And it was women. A couple of indivisible chapters, groups called Pave It Blue. It was, it was just, there's, there's too many groups to name. I, I have this optimism about the fundamentals on the ground because, for whatever reason... Democrats stopped paying attention to local races and especially state houses under Barack Obama not because of him but under Barack Obama we lost almost a thousand seats and We now have a situation where in Texas where you're from There are more Democrats on the state house and Senate ballot than there have been I think since your mom was governor, yes. seriously,
1: that's right. That's right. We're actually contesting every congressional race, which has not happened. Uh, every in-
4: congressional race. Everywhere I went, I went to these tiny towns in in Georgia in the last few weeks uh, with Stacey Abrams, and she's going. She's doing the Doug Jones strategy, and it wasn't Doug Jones's strategy. It was a strategy of a lot of smart women, especially black women. But you know, Doug Jones won because of this strategy. And so Stacey Abrams is going to rural counties where Democrats don't go to reach black and white rural voters. And I would run into the, the, the chair of the local Democratic Party, and they were like, we've got all the local ballot, all the local races, you know, county commissioner, pol- police chief, anything that's, that, that, that you run for locally, we've got... Democrats running and 10 years ago we had one or two. So I believe in that those fundamentals that those women mainly but also great men are there on the ground and what we saw in Virginia was what we called reverse coattails where mainly women but Democrats ran in, even in red districts where they had no chance to win their own races, but they turned out Democrats. And you have these people saying, I saw signs for Democrats. I didn't know there were any Democrats in my town or country or county. And those are, or country, we, there's, hey, we are the majority, never forget that. We are the majority. So those things helped Ralph Northam decent guy, not the most inspiring, was supposed to win by two or three, won by nine. You know, the the top of the slate won overwhelmingly. And, And I truly believe it was because we had so many Democrats running down ballot and so many of them were women. We're seeing the same in Georgia, which is my great hope for Stacey Abrams. We're also seeing voter suppression, which we can and should talk about. But the on the ground mobilization is real. People at the door means so much. Canvassing is everything. Not only is this the
1: year of the woman, last time it was the year of the woman, it was the year of the white woman. This year, it's going to be the year of the woman of color everywhere. (laughs) We have 80 women of color running for Congress this year. That is absolutely remarkable. Since I left Planned Parenthood in June, I've been actually just sort of hanging out in the Midwest. I've been in Ohio a lot where you can't throw a rock without hitting a new women's group that has started. I mean, they are everywhere. And as my daughter, who's an organizer, said, yeah, mom, there's no new men's groups starting up for <laughs> a million different reasons. And I think the thing that's exciting to me about is not only 20, 2018, but 2020, if you begin to actually link together all these women's groups that are organizing and actually begin to build real political power, we change everything about the future. And to me, that's what is the most, I think of like, you know, right now a lot of these groups and like, they marched, you know, they knitted their pussy hats, They went to town hall meetings, they called Congress, but now we just got to make sure they vote. Because if we actually do that, if we take all of this organizing power and build political power, it's unstoppable. One of the interesting things going to be to look at election night, which I'm sure you'll be looking at, is the gender gap. Um, because it's going both ways. One of the really interesting states, of course, is Florida, where we've all had our hearts broken a million times, but where it looks like Andrew Gillum is running ahead, one of the most exciting candidates in, in the country, running ahead in Florida. They were, there was just a poll, I think at the Quinnipiac poll, maybe it was today, on, on the, the Senate race there, which is a crucial Senate race. Women are favoring Bill Nelson by 20 points. Men are favoring Rick Scott by 10 points. That's a 30 point point gap. And obviously the, the good news is women are more motivated to vote. But it is really gonna be an interesting thing to see not only how how um, what an advantage the Democrats have with women, but frankly, how many men are sticking with the Republican Party and, in fact, even trending or that Or even going more that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But can I just put a stake in the ground and something? Yeah. Because I just think this is what I – I've spent, I spent my time since Planned Parenthood just listening to women around the country who are on fire. They are agitated. They're running for office. They're organizing groups. And they're going to vote. Every narrative – and I've been doing politics way too long. But every time there's an election – There's
4: no too long, Cecile.
1: Okay, well, any, yeah, and hope springs eternal. But um, every single election, I feel like, the, the tagline is always that somehow it's women's fault, whatever happened. And so I'm just here to say, I'm just going to put a stake in the ground that everything that Democrats win on November 6th is going to be because of women and people of color and young people. That's really... Yes. And I mean, and some white men who really hung with us. But I really think it's important because... We, we, we keep hearing this narrative It will be, well, women because of Kavanaugh or women because of this or whatever it is, women of color are going to be the most reliable voters for Democratic Party. Uh, women are going to be more reliable. And I think it's important that we shift the narrative away from all the things, all the ways that we fell short and, in fact, talk about all the work that we have done and the work that we will do to make in sure Donald Trump is not reelected. That, to yes. me, is like
4: – in the story. I, I think that's important, and, and I don't want this to sound pessimistic, but the, the map is, all of you are smart enough to know this, the map is completely against Democrats in the Senate. There are 10 Democrats running in states that Trump won, so it's tough. It's very tough. They're still doing incredibly well, and there was a, a point maybe six weeks ago where a lot of us felt like it was even possible for Democrats to take the Senate and it is still possible it's still possible but one of my worries in addition to women will be blamed if things aren't as as amazing if the blue wave doesn't sweep all you know we don't have a hundred democrats in in the senate um is that they will gaslight us by saying well you had a chance to take the senate and you didn't take the senate so you know i want i want to keep your optimism high but your realism high as well because especially in the senate this is, is, is very tough, but pay attention to state houses, pay attention to the state legislatures. Uh, and I, I think we're, I, I believe we're going to see a lot to make us excited uh, on election night.
1: I'll make one other plug because I'm a Texan, right? And there hasn't been any good news out of Texas in, yes. well, since mom was governor, I guess, actually. Pretty much. Um, although I, I just talked to my daughter, Hannah, who's down organizing for Beto. And, I mean, people are just voting like rabbits. It's so awesome. And <laughs> the other people are just, so, um, and I mean, I, I have high hopes for Beto. He's got a tough, I mean, we have such a disadvantage in the, you yes. know, in the midterms in Texas, but he's doing everything right. But here's the thing I think is important about Texas is that, Regardless of what happens with Beto, Sylvia Sil- Garcia and Veronica Escobar will be the first two Latinas ever to go to Congress from Texas, and they are coming yes. this November no matter what. Okay? So yeah. I think we have, to, we have to remember that these big marquee races where all the money and attention – is I mean, it's important, obviously, to follow – but it's it is these down ballot races it is these congressional races i mean we we may triple the the women number of women coming from minnesota to congress we you know we may nevada, actually,
4: nevada could have a 50-50 exactly. state legislature yeah so there's some it's good half there's a women. Lot of,
1: we just have to have a a story and a narrative that reflects you know all the things that are happening not just these big races which i think can somehow dominate
4: so she's right we have to have realistic goals and benchmarks and understand what we did and what our people did, because I think there there will be a lot to be proud of on Election Day.
2: Joan Walsh and Cecile Richards with Katrina Vanden recorded at a Nation Magazine event last week.
5: Support for Start Making Sense comes from Swing Left, We've said it here many times. It all starts with the House. If progressive candidates win in just 23 swing districts on November 6th, we can take back a majority in the House of Representatives and finally put a check on Donald Trump and the people in power who are supporting him. That's why nearly half a million people have signed up to volunteer with Swing Left. When you join Swing Left at swingleft.org backslash You'll be connected immediately with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the races in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact. We can flip the house, it's really that simple. Each of us has the power to change our country and save our democracy, but only if we do the work to take back the house. So don't just vote this year, volunteer. Join the grassroots movement that's changing things in this year's midterm elections. Sign up now at swingleft.org backslash sense. That's S-E-N-S-E.
2: Now it's time to talk about voter suppression. In many states, the question in this election is not just about which candidates will win, but about which voters will be able to cast a ballot in the first place. The fight over voting rights in the midterms is a reminder that elections are not only about who is running, they're also about who is allowed to vote and about which officials are trying to stop people from voting. For comment and analysis, we turn to Ari Berman. He's a senior reporter for Mother Jones, and he's the author of the award-winning book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, welcome back. Hey, John. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Well, let's start with Georgia, which has the most outrageous situation. Tell us about the situation there with the Secretary of State, who's in charge of enforcing the state's laws about who can vote.
6: Yeah. So I I think it's outrageous, both in terms of the laws themselves, but then also the fact that the secretary of state is running for governor and essentially overseeing his own election at a time when it seems like he is enforcing policies in a way that will benefit uniquely his campaign. Um, But this issue has really come in the news of late because in Georgia, 53,000 people were put on this pending registration list. Uh, and what they were told was that their registration documents didn't perfectly match in terms of state databases. So Georgia has a system called the exact match system. And if your middle name, if you have a hyphen, if you have an apostrophe, if, if that name on the photo registration list does not exactly match state databases, you can be blocked from registering to vote. And what that means is you can actually still vote if you show up in person and have the right ID, but you can't vote absentee and you're also sent a letter from the state telling you your registration is pending. So it's a very confusing situation. This is a very tight race. And Brian Kemp, the uh, Republican candidate for governor, has also just put in place a number of other very restrictive policies. He has purged 1.5 million people, which is a huge number of people, from 2012 to 2016. Uh, Georgia has closed uh, 214 polling places in the last four years. Uh, There is a bunch of stuff the state has done to try to make voting harder, and he has really been the architect of that policy, and now he's running for governor.
2: Of course, these... These policies have been challenged in court by the NAACP and the ACLU and a coalition of other voting rights groups.
6: What do you know about the challenges? So there's been a bunch of challenges. The problem is that it's very difficult to challenge these laws a few weeks before the election, um, because even if you get a good remedy, there's no real certainty that this is going to filter down to voters. But there have been a bunch of lawsuits. One lawsuit was filed over the fact that Georgia was rejecting ballots if the signature on the absentee ballot didn't match the signature on voter registration forms. They actually wanted a preliminary injunction against that, but then the Secretary of State has appealed it, so, so that's working its way through the courts. They've also challenged this exact match system uh, where uh, people are being blocked from registering because their signatures don't exactly, their voter registration information doesn't exactly match their uh, information on, on state databases, so there's been a bunch of litigation, but I don't think the courts are going to really resolve this. Before the election, completely. So I think it's really important to get the word out to people uh, who who have been sent these these pending registration forms that they can vote, and hopefully the directive is also laid down to county election officials not to toss ballots um, because it's a very chaotic situation there.
2: We've been talking just about Georgia, but. In terms of the big picture, how many states have imposed new restrictions on on voting? Which states are they?
6: The the big picture is that 24 states have imposed new restrictions on voting. So, things like tougher voter ID laws, or closing polling places, or purging the voting rolls, or making it harder to register to vote. Uh, all of those kind of things we're seeing play out now. Uh, and there are a bunch of states that have close elections, uh, places like Georgia, and Wisconsin, and Ohio, and also some states that are red states but that have competitive elections, places like Kansas and North Dakota, which are wouldn't be competitive in a presidential year but have close races for governor and for Senate and U.S. House. So if you really look at the map, virtually every state that has a new restriction on voting also has uh, some sort of competitive race, whether it's for the for the governor or for the senator or for the House.
2: In these 24 states, let me just ask Are these controlled by Republicans or Democrats, the 24 states that have imposed new restrictions on voting?
6: They virtually are all controlled by Republicans. Uh, This has been a a movement that has been almost entirely uh, done by the Republican Party. I think they've tried to get an electoral advantage. And I think what what they've tried to do is pass policies that will narrow the slice of the Democratic electorate to make it harder for younger voters, for first-time voters, for lower-income voters, for minority voters to be able to cast a ballot. And where the impact of these laws really show up is if you have very close elections. And it looks like we have a lot of really close elections going on in 2018.
2: One of those close elections is the Senate race in North Dakota, where the Democrats' most vulnerable Senate incumbent is running for re-election, Heidi Heitkamp. What's the situation with Republican-imposed voter restrictions in North Dakota?
6: The situation there is that the Supreme Court in October, so just a few weeks before the election, upheld a new voter ID law from that state that could prevent 70,000 people from voting in North Dakota, including 5,000 Native Americans, which is very significant because Heidi Heitkamp only won her first election to the Senate by 3,000 votes. And the issue there is that the way the law is written. You have to have a residential street address on your ID for it to count. But many Native Americans in North Dakota live on reservations where they don't have a street address, and that means that their tribal IDs aren't going to be valid for voting. So there's this crazy scramble underway in North Dakota for the tribes to try to assign people addresses that they never needed before and then give that information to election officials to have their votes counted. Um, but it's still very unclear uh, whether or not people are going to get these forms of ID and if the, these uh, IDs are going to be counted. And so this, this really could swing uh, one of the most important Senate races in the country. And if Heidi Heitkamp loses, it's, it's almost impossible for Democrats to retake the Senate.
2: And we have to talk about Texas Beto, the Democrats' most exciting candidate, challenging Ted Cruz if Latinos in Texas voted, Texas would become a blue state. It would become California. It's that simple. But in 2016, there were 3 million unregistered voters of color in Texas, including 2.2 million unregistered Latinos and three quarters of a million unregistered African Americans. How much of that is just the failure of these minority groups to participate in you know, the democratic process, how much of it has to do with the voting rights situation?
6: Well, a, a big part of it has to do with Texas's voting laws themselves. And a big part of why Texas remains a red state is because it has such restrictive voting laws, and it has the most restrictive voter registration law in the country. And the way it works is if you want to register voters, you actually have to be deputized by the state of Texas, uh, like you're uh, an amateur policeman or something. And then you can only register voters in the county you're deputized in and this is a really big problem because texas has 254 counties so if you want to go from county to county registering voters you have to be deputized in every single county which makes voter registration drives virtually impossible so even though voter registration has increased in texas in this election partly because of the excitement in the senate race there are still an enormously large number of unregistered voters of color who theoretically, if they were registered and voted, would help Beto O'Rourke big time. But the fact is they're not registered, so they can't participate. So he's working with an electorate that is far more favorable to Ted Cruz than the possible electorate, the eligible electorate in the state actually is.
2: Is there any hope? Do you have any good news about voting rights in America in
6: 2018? I actually do have good news, and and I do have some hope. And uh, one thing I'm hopeful about is the fact that there are actually going to be ballot issues in seven states that would expand voting rights. That would make it easier to register to vote. That would make it harder to gerrymander. That would restore voting rights to ex-felons. The the most important initiative is in Florida where that state could restore voting rights to up to 1.4 million ex-felons because Florida is one of only four states that prevent ex-felons from voting. And this felon disenfranchisement law in Florida prevents one in 10 Floridians from voting, so an absolutely gigantic number of people aren't able to vote in this election in Florida. But if this ballot initiative, which is called Amendment 4, actually passes, that would be a huge expansion of voting rights in this country, the largest expansion of voting rights in Florida since the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And so that is the good news is that at the time that there's all this suppression going on, there also are initiatives all across the country and also candidates running all across the country uh, that would expand voting rights. And, and, and so while I'm focusing on all the suppression, I'm also looking at the potential good news as well because this could be a really transformative election for voting rights.
2: Ari Berman, he wrote about how vote suppression could swing the midterms for page one of the New York Times Sunday Review. Thank you, Ari.
6: Thanks so much, John. Great to talk to you.
2: It's time to talk about politics right now in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt. For that, we turn to Gary Young. Of course, he's a columnist for The Nation, a fellow at The Nation Institute, and editor at large for The Guardian. He knows a lot about kids killed by guns. His book, Another Day in the Death of America a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives, was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. It's out now in paperback. We reached him today in Racine, Wisconsin. Gary Young, welcome back.
7: Thanks for having me, John.
2: Well, Racine is an old democratic town on Lake Michigan, an old factory town, an old immigrant town. It's Paul Ryan's district. I looked up the vote in 2016. It voted overwhelmingly for Hillary, 63 percent. Trump got only 29 percent in Racine. But, of course, Trump did carry the state of Wisconsin narrowly. And Wisconsin famously has this militant right-wing Republican Governor Scott Walker. People call him a Trump before Trump. How are progressive activists in Racine feeling about next week's election this week?
7: Well, their mood is very cautious optimism. You mentioned Racine City voting overwhelmingly for Hillary in terms of percentage, but actually very few of them turned up. Racine County in 2016 voted for Trump. Racine County pretty much always votes for the president, voted for Obama twice. Bush twice, Clinton twice, and it's voted for Trump. And the way that it voted for Trump really reflects an awful lot of what went on in the Midwest. So the vote dropped by 10%, Trump won narrowly, and the number of votes he got was 5% less than the number of votes that Mitt Romney got when Mitt Romney lost here. The urgency for the Democrats is to make sure that their vote shows up. The, the biggest payoff was in Racing City. And Racine is 40%, well, about 45% minority. And so Democrats here, they have been through a lot in the last eight years. There was the election of Scott Walker, then the resistance, what I call the resistance before the resistance, the, the, the uprising uh, around Madison, the state capitol, the occupation of the capital. Then they tried to recall Scott Walker, and he ended up with even more votes, with an even higher margin than when he was originally elected. Then he was reelected in 2014, and then in 2016, Trump wins Wisconsin. Now, a Republican hasn't won Wisconsin since 84, and nobody, Republican or Democrat, went to bed thinking that Trump was gonna win. Although now, when you talk to Democrats, they say, you know, we could see, actually, that the vote was down. We did see that wherever we were, but we just thought it was unthinkable. And so they um, they have lost a number of times before, and so they will take nothing
2: for granted. You talked to some really interesting people there, Angelina Cruz, who runs the teachers' union. Tell us about her.
7: Angelina, she's a, she's, she's a fighter. She's a campaigner. She's, she's a native Wisconsinite. And she said, you know, the election did change the way she felt about her home state. And that she would run around thinking, which one of you crazy white people voted against everything that I am? I've, I've been out with her a couple of times in town, and she's well known and well loved. She introduced Randy Bryce. He is running against Paul Ryan's successor, Republican successor, a guy called Brian Stile, at a Bernie rally. So there's been, been a Bernie rally here. Obama was in Milwaukee. Trump was in Morsese, uh, which is about three hours away, all of which. Just shows you how intense these elections are. So they're not leaving, <laughs> not leaving anything to chance, and they're assuming nothing. Uh, as um, Kelly Gallagher, who's a local activist, told me, "We don't have the luxury of hope."
2: We don't have the luxury of hope. Wow. You also spoke with Aaron Forrest, who's head of an organization called Emerge Wisconsin. Tell us about Emerge Wisconsin and Aaron Forrest.
7: Well, Emerge Wisconsin aims to uh, identify and train and support women, democratic women, who are standing for office. And they've seen a significant increase in the number of women standing for office over the last two years. When women stand, whether they win or lose, then more women stand next time. The, these, this is the, uh, the pattern. Just because they see that they are capable of standing, that people like them are standing. And that women win for legislative office at the same rate as men.
2: One of the really interesting candidates, sort of down ballot in Wisconsin, is the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor. His name Mandela Barnes. Tell us about him.
7: Mandela Barnes is a thirty one year old community organizer who emerged through the uprising and and all that's gone on over the last eight years and in to some extent kind of symbolizes what has happened, even if they haven't won elections, that people like him have come through. These are not your regular democratic candidates. And so really for the first time since Obama, for me, I'm seeing Democrats actually quite energized by the people that are actually running.
2: We've heard a lot about the candidates in Wisconsin, especially down ballot. Of course, most most people are talking about what they consider the big question, who will run against Trump in 2020? Some say Bernie, some say it has to be Elizabeth Warren.
7: Well, I think it's the wrong question. <laughs> It's my belief that the question shouldn't be who, but what and why. What are they running on? What is the agenda? At the moment, more people believe that the Democrats stand against the Republicans or against Trump than believe they actually stand for something. And that's just not good enough that we have this brazen bigot in the White House who, by the way, the Republicans are quite happy with. Uh, I've been talking to them here, and uh, he didn't win here. Um, Ted Cruz won here in the primaries. But they say, you know what? He's delivering. Then the question then becomes, well, what do Democrats want to deliver? Who are they in the face of what I think is a kind of existential crisis for American democracy, given what he's doing and what's going on in the rest of the world? Who are they, and what do they want? The degree to which the party can thrash those out is the degree to which it will produce a candidate that people can relate to and that people like. And it's also true that the characteristics that people are looking for in a candidate have changed. Trump, every day, does about 10 things that no candidate, Republican or Democrat, could have done and got away with. He looks ridiculous, orange man with weird hair he has five children i think from three different women he's in untold involved in untold sex ga- this is not a character who's supposed to win and actually even though they're very very different is not a character who's supposed to do well either he's a crotchety old guy from vermont i mean that's not all he is but it does similarly with Jeremy Corbyn's kind of bumbly sort of sandal wearing, just just not <laughs> if you were to if you were to focus group these people and give their resumes and say, "What about this gun? The Jewish guy from Vermont, the bumbling guy who is really passionate about Kurdistan, the orange guy with the weird hair. <laughs> Which one do you favor? None of whom, by the way, I believe this is true about Bernie Sanders, none of whom have military service. Some of whom are broke, some of whom are billionaires. Who would you? Well, they would say, we don't want any of us. (laughs) someone who looks like, you know, someone I might know? Pretty much everything that we thought about what works as a candidate doesn't work. All the more reason, therefore, to develop the idea, and develop the purpose, and then worry about the candidate later.
2: Gary Young, his new column in The Nation is titled If You Build a Left Movement, The Candidates Will Come. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Gary. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks with the author of a new book about Babe Ruth and the birth of the modern celebrity athlete. Also, the toxic football culture at the University of Maryland. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.